have, uh, we have awesome musicians and lots of talent in the house, yeah? It's just wonderful because they just don't get in the way, <laughs> you know, of worship, and they just serve week in and week out and um, don't ask for much. Just a little food and water, and they're good. So... Um, I wrestled a lot about this message because uh, it seems um, big and ominous to me. And so lucky for you this morning, I yanked out all the really thick, heavy stuff and moved it to next week. So there's your threat and warning for next week. <clears throat> and instead, tried to keep it accessible because we moved this morning to the heart and the core of the Christian faith. The battlefront, the battlefield of what it means to desire God, and it's summed up in one word, trust. Will we trust God? Will we have faith? You can call it reliance, you can call it trust, you can call it faith, you can call it uh, perseverance, you, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but trusting God is the battlefield of what it means to be following Jesus. And it doesn't get any tougher than trying to figure out if we will follow God with all that we have every moment of the day, all the time. That's the challenge, isn't it? Whatever you want to call it, it's the hard thing to do. You know, in the Bible, there is no verse that says, God helps those who help themselves. That's been manufactured somewhere. But there are plenty of stories in the Bible about people trusting God, and by the way, people who don't trust God, and the difference between them. And that's what we're going to deal with today. A story about somebody who trusts God and a story about somebody who doesn't. And this is found in 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you brought your Bible or if you have an app or something on your phone or whatever, you might want to open it up. 1 Samuel chapter 14. You'll do well to kind of follow along because uh, it's a rather long and involved story. And it might do you well to read that, especially when you get bored of me talking. So 1 Samuel chapter 14, we read about Israel's first king, that is King Saul. God told Israel, you do not want a king. They said, yes, we do. We want to be like everybody else. And he said, okay. And so King Saul is their first king. And he has a son, and his son's name is Jonathan. Israel at this time of uh, of Israel's first king, King Saul, is at war with a tribe called the Philistines. The Philistines are the same people from David and Goliath, okay? And they are large and ferocious. And um, so Israel is doing battle with the Philistines. And they're out in the wilderness, and the armies are lined and ready to go into battle, but nothing's happening. And uh, by the way, this story is going to be about Jonathan, and Jonathan is, of course, King Saul's heir, but Jonathan does not become king. Guess who becomes king? David, who at this time is just a small shepherd boy out tending the sheep. What's even more intriguing and phenomenal about Jonathan is that David and Jonathan become best friends. And keep in mind now, Jonathan is the one who's supposed to, you know, legally, so to speak, become heir to the throne. But instead, in this phenomenal person of Jonathan, he steps aside in humility and courage and self-assuredness and lets his good friend David become king. Just a little precursor to the coolness of Jonathan. So if you name your kid John or Jonathan, good job. Okay? 
Now, here's what's going on. Jonathan is going to demonstrate what it looks like to trust God. 100%, radically, absolutely, nothing held back, trusting God. King Saul is instructed by God to go up against the terrorizing Philistines. Okay? For God tells Saul that if you will trust me, God says, and go against the Philistines, you will be victorious. Never mind the fact that the Philistines have thousands of soldiers and horses and chariots included, and the Israelites only have 600 soldiers. Okay? A little scary. 600 against several thousand? Saul's army is so small, and he then has no faith in God. Interestingly enough, Saul spends more time trying to conjure God magically than, than actually praying. Or relying on God. Even though God tells Saul that if you'll just lead these guys into battle, you'll be victorious. But Saul wants his high priest to come from another city. And so he waits for him and waits for him. But he's a few hours late. So what's Saul do? He goes out and finds some other priests and some other prophets. And then he even consults some witches. Real legitimate witches. And is trying to find out whether or not he'll be victorious. He won't do anything. And we find Saul paralyzed by fear and indecision, sitting under a large pomegranate tree, surrounded by a collection of priests and whatever else he might call, what we might just call good luck charms. And Saul does nothing. He has no faith, no trust in God's ability. And you know what? If you'd read about Saul's life, you'll see that this is naturally where it's going to end up. Because Saul spends no time fostering and building a relationship with God. God to Saul is a genie. God to Saul is a good luck charm. He's sort of this deity that you run to in last resort. So he has no relationship, so he doesn't know the character of God. But Saul sure looked like a super king, good-looking guy, well-spoken, awesome military guy, but no trust in God. Not one bit. So he's sitting underneath this pomegranate tree, and he's doing nothing. But his son Jonathan, his son Jonathan, who's out there actually in the wilderness with his father, with the, the whole army. Jonathan, one day, Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, he says, hey. He's not telling his dad. Hey, come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost, the enemy outpost. Okay? Okay. Jonathan doesn't tell his father. And now between Saul, uh, Saul's army and the Philistine army, we have to understand some geography. It's a huge ravine, and I've seen pictures of it. And sure enough, it's like Middle Eastern countryside or wilderness. It's scrubby, it's rocky, it's sandy, it's dry and desolate, and it's very, very deep, several hundred feet down. And the Hebrews are on one side, and the Philistines are on the other. And if you were going to go over to the Philistine outpost, you have to make your way down this thing and climb up towards your enemy, where they could kind of look down and see you. Not a great military strategy to try and do it this way, but that's the only choice they have. Okay? So Jonathan says, let's go over to the Philistine outpost. And as Jonathan's uh, with his armor bearer, they begin to walk towards the Philistines. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, the young man behind him, he says, Come, 
Let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Now, notice exactly how Jonathan thinks of God and not the situation. This is a very, very early type thing you ought to understand about faith and trusting God. It is always about God, not about the circumstances. Always about God, not the situation. Jonathan doesn't know anything for certain. Unlike his father Saul, it appears that God did not tell Jonathan, go against the Philistines, and I'll give you a victory. Instead, perhaps, there's a wishy-washy word for you, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. He doesn't really know. Here's the first thing we have to overcome to become people of faith like Jonathan. Faith moves out under uncertainty. Faith moves out under uncertainty. If you wanted to jot down three things, and I'll give you three this morning. I think this is what's called a three-point sermon. Here's your first one. Faith moves out under uncertainty. If you wrote down the word uncertainty, I don't care if you just write it down and then put it in the recycle bin when you leave. There's something about writing it down that really helps. Anyway, jot down. Faith moves out under uncertainty. You need to think compass, not roadmap. God doesn't give us a roadmap. He gives us a compass. We have direction, not a detailed plan. If we got a detailed plan from God, we don't need God. We got the plan. You got a compass, you're on a journey. Uncertain. Faith moves out under uncertainty. So Jonathan steps out of hiding and walks directly into the enemy's path. He has absolutely no idea if God's going to show up with anything victorious. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps not. Surely God is thinking exactly what I've been thinking. And now I've got a genie in my pocket and we will do this. Like Saul was hoping for. Because Jonathan focuses on God's character. He has spent his days on his knees before the Lord Almighty. And he understands who God is. He understands who God is. Nothing can hinder the Lord. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. This is what Jonathan knows. So, how about you? Check-in moment. Think back over the past few weeks or months or years. How would you describe your trust in God, your faith? How would we do that? Is it sitting under a pomegranate tree, waiting for more information? Or is it taking chances and moving out with uncertainty? Have you been thrust into a life that you cannot control? And then when that happens, do you shake an angry fist at God and say, I'll do this myself? Or do you say, it's God. What else can I say? What else can I do? It's you, God. It's you. Do you know God's heart? Because, folks, this is the way this thing works. You must get before God Almighty. You must pour yourself into God's realm, into his world, into his reality. Through prayer, through solitude, through silence, through exercises and disciplines of reading Scripture and having a mentor and many, many other things. Pick one. Pick them all. And invest into this. Because when the stuff hits the fan, and it will, who will you trust Who will you trust? Will you be sitting under a pomegranate tree or will you be climbing up a rocky cliff towards the enemy outpost saying perhaps, perhaps, I don't know. I find it amazing that people think 
real authentic Christianity is somehow repressive or simplistic or stupid or just a bunch of do's and don'ts and some sort of moralism. Instead, what it is is an, is an, it's an, it's an incredible adventure of uncertainty. It's, it's, a, it's a delight. I don't know how else to put it. Not in sort of some superficial stupid sense. It's a delight because you have no idea what you're about and where you're going. You only have a compass, not a road map. As David, King David, later on would write in the Psalms, he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Or put another way, when you deeply trust God, you can do whatever you want. Now, that is ripe for misinterpretation. <laughs> and you'll find out if you know God exactly what it means. It means you're absolutely free when we trust God. It is a slavery to not trust God. And if those are thick words, then we have work to do. Compare this unpredictable roller coaster delight with those who refuse to trust God. I, I have a relative who has everything. They are wealthy, they have everything anybody that desires in this world. They're not very happy. And one day, coming home from fishing, in one of those long, boring car coming home from fishing conversations, he said, I don't know, Dan. I'm just trying to entertain myself until I die. Long silence. Are we just trying to entertain ourselves until we die? Or are we living a life that is built on trust that will delight and scare the bejabbers out of you? Because you can do either one. Trust is all about uncertainty and action. You can't just live in uncertainty. That's still sitting under the pomegranate tree. Saul's uncertain. The question is, is do, are we people of action? Well, we move out. Like Jonathan, he has just as much uncertainty as Paul. Actually, Saul has, I mean, it's Paul. Saul. If I say Paul, I really mean Saul. Got it? <laughs> I know I did that first service a bunch, so I'm just giving you the asterisk there. Saul is the one who lives in uncertainty, even though he's, God's already told him. Go! Jonathan is in uncertainty, but he goes. When I was 24 years old, I could pack up my entire life in the back of a pickup truck and still have room. I had a couple of boxes of books. I had a couple of boxes of clothes and some old cheap suitcase that my dad had given me. I had a guitar, and uh, uh, I think I had a mattress with one pair of sheets and a towel and a washcloth. Life was easy, simple. I could move in an evening and did. My life was completely open to God. I'd spent years at that point since I was 16 trying to trust God, living into the disciplines of the Christian life. And when God said to go, I could go. It's been the pattern of my life to just do something, to just move out with action, even in uncertainty. And at the risk of self-aggrandizement, when I was 17, I helped start four young life clubs for, for, high, for middle, high, middle students. Nobody had ever done it, but my leader said, why don't you try and do this? I said, okay. I didn't know enough to fear failure. And then I took off for KU with little financial help from my folks. We weren't really that well off. And within a few weeks of me getting to KU, my dad had a stroke. Paralyzed on one side for the rest of his life, next 22 years. Now, there really wasn't any money. 
In a strange twist of fate, I decided to stick it out, and then a letter came that said, because your dad's disabled, the government will give me money. I'm like, what? So they gave me a little bit of money every month, and that's how I made it through college. Oh, yeah, and also then I moved into, on a complete faith move, I moved into this Episcopal ministry house that they just bought, this dumpy three-story dilapidated house up in Lawrence, Kansas, and my rent was $30 a month and some chores. Who else gets $30 rent during college? You know? I learned a lot about the Episcopal Church. Grew up Baptist, never knew anything about the Episcopalians. Some I likes, some I don'ts. <laughs> Quite an education. Then, after college, I moved into a youth house to help train up student disciples and disciple them. So they could go out and do the same thing I'd been doing for the last few years. And those were lean years. I didn't have a good job. I was in the early 80s. And if you think 7.9% unemployment's big, try 14%. Okay? With a personnel degree. Expendable. Um, <laughs> but I landed a job on College Boulevard doing marketing. And I kept, in the evenings, I would go home, take off the suit and tie, and I would go over to the high school campus where I did Young Life and did ministry volunteer. And I remember every time going over there in absolute fear, moving out with uncertainty, saying, God, God, I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know who I'm going to talk to here. I don't know who it'll be. And most of the time, I didn't really end up talking to anybody, you know, maybe some school officials or somebody like that. And then one Friday night, just several of the cases like this, one Friday night at Shiny Mission North after a football game, it was 1030 or so, and down near the end of the bleachers, I'd spent the entire game pretty much kind of sitting there by myself, praying, God, let me meet with somebody. There's a young man that's crying down at the end of the thing, and he had been waiting for me. And I got to him, and I can't quite remember what he said, but he said, basically, I got to turn my life over to God. I've just been messing around this whole time, and I was waiting for you. That young man, by the way, was Tim Keel, who started Jacob's Well and has gone on to be a fairly uh, famous and popular author. And I just think, if I could do that my whole life, somewhere way in the background, try and just simply guide people to God, that would be enough. Well, after that, uh, I got married. And just a word to you young guys who are looking for a woman, uh, shoot high, really, shoot really high. Believe me. No is not a bad word. It just means you failed. But um, <laughs> the next one may say yes. Just shoot high. You don't know what's going to happen. Lori, in a weak moment, married me. <laughs> you know? And look at what Garrett came out with. Huh? <laughs> you know? I mean, this is working. Yeah. Shoot high, guys. You know? It's not that bad. Go for it. And then in another weak moment, Lori went with me to seminary out to California. And then in her weakest moment of her entire life, you thought marriage was weakness, I said, let's start a church. And she said, okay. <laughs> and then I found myself within a few years standing on some wobbly, weak stage in a dark movie theater infested with rodents and a, a, a dot stuck to the bottom of my shoe preaching. And I was surrounded by a handful of people that were more dedicated to the mission than even I was, sacrificing everything they had. And now we're here. And now we're here. 
The next word in the three-point sermon is just do something. Just do something. Action, everyone. Uncertainty and do something. You must move out. Jonathan and his young armor bearer are making their way towards the Philistine outpost. And as they were making their way, Jonathan reveals his battle plan to the two of them, his young armor bearer and himself. And he says, here's the plan. Come, then we'll cross over toward the men and let them see us. I'm not a military guy, but let me tell you, letting the enemy see you before you attack does not sound really smart. Especially when there's only two of you and there's thousands of them. Okay? If they say to us, if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and we'll not go up to them. But if they say to us, come to us, we will climb up because then that'll be the sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Now, you've got to think about this young armor bearer at this point. Like, that's the plan? If they say, wait there, we'll come to you, we're going to get slaughtered? But if they say, wait, we'll come up, like, and that's supposed to be better? About that time, the Philistines spot the two of them, and they say, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their hole, taunting them. And they shout at Jonathan's armor bearer, come up to us, and we'll teach you a lesson. <laughs> so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord's given him into the hand of Israel. Right. <laughs> this is Jonathan's radical, absolute, positively, 100% complete trust in God at this very moment in his life. This is it. And after the Philistines had taunted them, and Jonathan even had to put away his sword in order to climb up to the top, he even comes up without a sword in his hand. It's kind of like in that, you know, Princess Bride moment. We're like, can you give me a moment here? I've got to take my breath here before we sword fight. Anyway, he gets up to the, fo- the top of the, the rocky face cliff, and with no offensive plan or posture, Jonathan is absolutely, absolutely convinced that this is his divine moment of God's leading. And when he gets to the top, the Bible says the Philistines step back. What? They step back. They didn't engage. And then Jonathan begins to cut them down. And it says in the scripture, it says they were like stalks of corn, like some sort of mechanical harvesting device. And he took down 20 in just a moment. Soon, some sort of divine spirit of God falls upon them all. And they go into utter chaos. They start fighting each other and killing each other. The Philistines are running around crazy. Soon the rest of Saul's army joins in the battle. They look over there and say, look, something's going on. And they all scramble down, scramble up, and they join in the whole thing. And that day it was a rout. And then the text in the story says this in verse 23 of chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. So the Lord rescued Israel that day. Not Saul, not Jonathan, not his armor bearer, nobody but the Lord. The Lord rescued Israel that day. Now, what's interesting about Jonathan's trust in this divine moment is this. What if the Philistines had said to him, wait there, we'll come down to you. (laughs) Then Jonathan and his armor bearer would have been harvested. See, Jonathan put his own life and the life of another completely in the hands of God, whether it be life or death. And we can also say this about being a person of faith and trust like Jonathan. Third. Authentic faith is always God-sized. It's a life-and-death situation. Nobody ever really faces and trusts in God until we get into a life-and-death situation of some sort, until things get really desperate. At this point, I'm thinking of the last year with us and our family and going through cancers. That's when you begin to trust God. And I don't know what your situation is in your life. It may not be pure, literal life and death, but it may sure feel like it. 
That's when you bank on God the most, and it all pays off. There are lots of Christians who are not living the good life. They are rotting in prison cells simply for preaching the gospel. And we read about one this week in a newsletter from our brothers and sisters in China. His name is Ali Mu Jiang. He's been in prison for 15 years for preaching the gospel. Had a small son who was only a few months old when he was arrested. Hasn't seen him. The boy is 16 years old. All for the sake of Jesus. He's not living the good life. Neither is his family. But he has moved out under uncertainty into a God-sized faith. When he gets out, maybe we can get him to come here. That would be cool. I am now convinced that the answer to the question, where is God leading you, is the most important question you can ever ask. Not where am I going, where is God leading you? God is in the equation. Where do you think God wants to lead you? What is the next move? Will you have faith in uncertainty? Will you do something instead of sitting underneath the pomegranate tree waiting for more information? And will it be God-sized? That one we really don't know. I'll tell you about where this where God's led this church these days. We are in the middle of a $1.2 million financial challenge called As One. We're about two years into it. And dozens of us have committed sacrificial gifts. And yes, uh, a lot of the gifts go to the poor and the oppressed here and around the world. And then over half of it goes to continuing buying the ministry around here, especially for our students and children. And I'll, tell, I'll say this. Money. Money is the one place where we will learn the most about whether we trust God. It is the big brass ring in our snout that will drag us all over the place. And, you know, I don't... This church doesn't need your money. This is where the elders cringe. This church doesn't need your money. God certainly doesn't need your money. But you, you and I, we need to give away our money. <laughs> you know? We need to part with our possessions because they are so easily, so easy to become an idol and some precious that we want to, to, to hang on to. And we have to let it go. Otherwise, we will make that into the thing that we trust. And that's why money is one of the most powerful discipleship tools in the human experience, in the Christian life. And what you do with it matters not just because of the outcome of what you do with the gift but because what it does inside of you and i remember back in 2004 the very first time we did one of these financial challenges i was scared to death i thought we'd lose everybody and we only lost a few these weren't going to participate but i remember about three months after we'd started the thing to buy this building and i was down in the inner city with chris jaley the founder of the hope center and we were walking the neighborhood and we came up to this pink house that was behind the Hope Center where the kids, you know, get reparented and now go to school and all of that. And this pink house was a drug house. And we didn't stand there long because Chris said, let's keep moving. But we stood there and we looked at that pink house. And I thought, I said to Chris, I said, what do you think a house like that costs? And he said, I don't know, it's like about $40,000. We were all giving 
gifts that totaled $40,000 a month to buy this place. And I thought, one more month? We could buy a drug house. Now, the drug dealers will move three blocks away, but at least they won't be right behind the Hope Center. I thought, at that point, we became one of those super-duper powerful churches. One month, we could move drug dealers out of the neighborhood if we wanted to. But that is the power of trusting God with money. Now, we about a, I don't know, half block away, we own a house called the Eastland House, and this is the uh, solicitation for you to come down there and work on March 23rd, 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning. See for yourself. Won't that be fun? Wear your old clothes. Well, we move uh, towards communion. It is a cup of faith. It is a cup of blessing. Band, you guys might want to come on up now. This cup, more than just some dry, dead ritual, it is a covenant between you and God. When you take your piece of bread and tear it off, and you dip it in the chalice and you eat it right then, what you're saying in some sort of tangible, visceral moment through the taste of the grape juice and the bread, you're saying, I believe, I trust, I want to. God, you've got to take me kicking and screaming closer to you. I repent of denying you, but now I drink a cup with you. We are in fellowship together. Now we'll all fail at it, and we will succeed at it. But it is a covenant when we drink of this cup with God through Jesus Christ and his blood. This is why Jesus instituted this, that on the night when he was betrayed, he took the, the bread and he took the cup and he said, this is my body and this is my blood. When you consume of this, you are with me. You are a part of my movement, my kingdom, my promises for eternal life. So, underneath your seat right now, yes, underneath your seat is a piece of paper. And on it are scriptures and blessings. And we are going to give you a moment as we prepare to come to reflect on what's written there. There are all different ones. If you don't like the one you have, then reach around to another spot under a blank chair and take another one. Collect them all. Take them home. Put them on the refrigerator. Circle the one word that seems to be standing out to you. But we're going to give you about a minute and a half of just stone silence here in the room. No music, nothing. And you can prepare your heart right here and now. And there will be a song played that says, slow me down. And you're saying, yeah, that's what I want to pray. Slow me down, God. I'm moving way too fast. I, I am not keeping up with my, with my relationship with you. It is your opportunity to reflect on however God takes you. Some of us never get to slow down. We just go, go, go. Well, here you are at church, and now you're going to slow down. We'll just help you out. So read the verse slowly, meditatively, and I'll stop talking. And then Chris will call us up when he's ready for us for communion. Oh, Lord, you've examined my heart, know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I'm travel. 
when I rest at home, you know everything I do. I know what I'm going to say. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. It's just too much. I don't know what word you got, but this is the one that stood out to me. May it be our prayer and our blessing all week long. May we meditate on, on it. May it become a part of us. Now, would you stand with me, please? And we will say the good word. May the Lord bless us and keep us from all harm and lead us to eternal life beginning right now, right now, this very day. We are living in the kingdom of heaven. And we all said, Amen. Go in peace.